The Hamlet Podcast, episode 80. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. Hamlet just finished with a final command that Ophelia get herself to a nunnery and has now left the stage. It's been such a grim scene for this young woman, acting as a pawn for the king and her father in the hope that she might lead Hamlet into some kind of confession of what's on his mind. After his huge existential soliloquy, we see quite a nasty side of Hamlet as he rails against truth and beauty and honesty and marriage, all at Ophelia. We in the audience have heard him say that he will pretend to be mad, but done well, this scene does still blur the lines. Hamlet's madness, presumed or real, is integral to much of what follows in the play, and certainly Ophelia thinks it is genuine. As she catches her breath, she laments what she's seen. Oh, what a noble mind is here o'erthrown! The courtiers, soldiers, scholars, eye, tongue, sword, the expectancy and rose of the fair state, the glass of fashion and the mould of form, the observed of all observers quite, quite down. And I, of ladies most deject and wretched, that sucked the honey of his music vows, now see that noble and most sovereign reason, like sweet bells jangled out of tune and harsh, that unmatched form and feature of blown youth, blasted with ecstasy. Oh, woe is me, to have seen what I have seen, see what I see. There's no question for Ophelia that Hamlet has lost his reason, Her speech is a clear list of what has been lost and undone. The imagery she uses is quite affecting. She suggests that Hamlet's noble mind has been overthrown. Whether deliberately or not, it calls to mind how Claudius came to power. Next, she lists some of Hamlet's better features to show just how far he's fallen in this state. In her distress, it seems her logic gets a little jumbled, as she starts with the courtiers, soldiers, scholars, eye, tongue, sword. If she is idealising Hamlet by listing these tributes, they seem a little off. While, of course, any ideal Renaissance prince would have digested the book of the courtier and trained as a soldier and had an education worthy of a scholar. In Ophelia's list, it makes little sense to start matching these things up. If Hamlet has a courtier's eye, a soldier's tongue and a scholar's sword, that doesn't necessarily add up to very much. Instead, she's listing things quickly. In the past, he's been as much a potential courtier, soldier and scholar, easy on the eye, well-spoken and a decent fighter. Hamlet is the expectancy and rose of the fair state. He's the heir to the Danish throne and the hope of the nation. One wonders how much the rest of Denmark knows about the goings-on inside the castle of Elsinore, but that will have to be discussed later. Shakespeare uses the image of a rose in numerous plays and poems as a symbol of a young man's potential, and it's reasonable to assume that Ophelia is doing so here. She continues that Hamlet has been the glass of fashion and the mould of form, the observed of all observers. He's been something of a trendsetter, determining the mould of what people might emulate, the observed of all observers. Everyone has their eye on Hamlet, and in a court where such eyes are always trained on something. And all of these good things are gone. They've fallen quite, quite down. With all of these good qualities of Hamlet ruined, she herself is at a loss, and she continues to beweep her own outcast state. 
She feels herself of ladies most deject and wretched, she that sucked the honey of his music vows. Hamlet's vows and promises were like music to her, and like a bee to honey she sucked greedily at them. But now she of all women is the most unfortunate, since this misery is all they've brought her. Now, instead of whatever happiness his music vows might have promised, she's left watching Hamlet's mind, his noble and most sovereign reason, behave like a set of bells that have been jangled, out of tune and harsh. A set of bells rung too violently and out of order produces a loud, angry sound, at odds with what they've created for. This is how Ophelia imagines Hamlet's mind. It's a brilliant image, and so much the better because she points out that it's not just out of tune, but harsh. Ophelia obviously loved Hamlet. She feels that he was unmatched in form or feature. So he was handsome and excellent before his madness struck him and blasted him with ecstasy. The whole speech is very short, but it's dense with images and information, and while it's sometimes tempting to actresses to play it terribly emotionally, this can go too far, and if an audience just gets a general sense of Ophelia being sad after Hamlet's exit, I think it's a bit of a loss, because there's so much in the speech. It ends with an actual, woe is me, at which point Ophelia can show how upset she is to have seen what I have seen, see what I see, but only then. Next up, with the coast thoroughly cleared by Ophelia's speech, Claudius and Polonius emerge from behind the arras. For once, it's Claudius who gets to speak first. Love. His affections do not that way tend. Nor what he spake, though it lacked form a little, was not like madness. There's something in his soul, o'er which his melancholy sits on brood, and I do doubt the hatch and the disclose will be some danger, which for to prevent... I have in quick determination thus set it down. He shall with speed to England for the demand of our neglected tribute. Claudius has obviously had some time to think, and he and Polonius enter clearly halfway through a whispered conversation when he starts with love. As though this is the best that Polonius could come up with. Hamlet is mad because he and Ophelia have been in love. Claudius is not at all convinced. As he is quick to point out, his affections do not that way tend. Hamlet has just ranted about how there'll be no more marriages because men are knaves and women dishonest. Whatever passion we've just seen in Hamlet, it certainly wasn't love. Claudius also gets a funny little dig in. Nor what he spake, though it lacked form a little, was not like madness. Hamlet may not have been particularly eloquent, but he didn't sound insane. Now we start to see just how smart Claudius is. He's like a chess player manoeuvring his way around the board. Correctly, he believes that there's something else going on with Hamlet. There's something in his soul, or which his melancholy sits on brood. This image is of a hen keeping her eggs warm before they hatch. Hamlet's melancholy is likewise sitting on top of something, and Claudius is keen to find out what, because he does doubt the hatch and the disclose will be some danger. He's apprehensive, because whatever it is will be serious trouble once it comes about. But he's already a few steps ahead, at least he thinks so. He's made some decisions to counteract whatever Hamlet might be up to. Which, for to prevent, I have in quick determination thus set it down. He shall with speed to England, for the demand of our neglected tribute. 
He will send Hamlet to England to collect money that is owed to Denmark. It's not the most exciting chore to give the prince, but it's not beyond the bounds, given the number of diplomatic missions we've already encountered in the play. Voltamand and Cornelius have already gone to Norway, and indeed young Fortinbras is on the march on behalf of his king. Claudius hopes that such a journey will take Hamlet's mind off things, at least for now, but we'll save the rest of his speech and the remainder of the scene for the next episode. Thank you very much for listening, as ever. 80 episodes later, I really am very grateful for it. And do be sure to check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com. In celebration of this episode number 80, I've created a glossary of terms we've already discussed, collated in alphabetical order and viewable on a new glossary page. Be sure to check it out and to tune in next time for the conclusion of this scene. I'll speak to you then.